Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. We have been working our way through the book of Amos in a series of signposts and today I want to read from Amos chapter 4 beginning at verse 6. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and a lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water but did not get enough to drink, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I set plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You are like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty, is his name. Well, in our previous signpost in Amos, we noted that uh, in verses 1 to 5 of Amos 4, the people of Israel are condemned for two reasons. Uh, firstly, they have had a failure to care. They had amassed great wealth and luxury, but all at the expense of other people, and they did nothing to help those in need. The rich and the powerful of Israelite society oppressed the poor and the weak, uh, members of that society. And God warns them that all of their wealth, their luxury and their status will be taken away from them. Um, as, as just as they have treated the poor and the needy like animals, so too they will be treated like animals when they are taken off into uh, exile. Now the antidote to this feeling is of course to be caring and compassionate to those who are in need, to be concerned with the poor. In our own generation, I guess it's true that most of us are not uh, actually willfully oppressing the poor and making ourselves rich on the, the suffering of the poor, but that doesn't mean that we're caring for them either. Uh, the failure here was not so much that they amassed wealth, uh, but the way that they amassed it and the lack of care that that showed for the poor and the needy. And so the, the, the just because we are not oppressing the poor doesn't mean that we are caring for them. So we need to take note of that so that the, the lesson of the Israelites' failure is not one that we can afford to make or we might find ourselves under the same condemnation. But they also had a failure to worship. Now, as Achtmeyer notes, the Israelites thought that their rituals allowed them to meet and enter into communion with God, enjoying God's favour and fellowship. Uh, Amos contradicts that belief by labelling their worship as rebellion against God. The people worshipped God in name only. It was all about putting on a good show, making themselves look devout and religious. It wasn't a genuine or heartfelt worship. 
they didn't even worship according to the word of God. They were much more concerned about what they got out of it and how it made them feel. In effect, their worship was godless. And actually that's something we really need to take note of in this generation for our own worship, that we don't make the same mistakes. In fact, we must make every effort to ensure that we come before God as true worshippers who worship God from the heart and don't just pay him lip service. Uh, and that we do that for God's glory and not for our own gratification or to improve our own sense of self-worth. I think that's a, a very real danger in uh, in church today, especially when um, you know, worship has become a commodity that's on sale, that you can download, that you can view on a screen. Um, and actually it's to be much more than that it's to be something that comes from our hearts God is worthy of our praise not for what we can get out of it um, or because it, or how it makes us feel he's worthy of our praise because he is worthy of all praise and that's it the people of Israel then have brought judgment upon themselves and so <coughs> excuse me in verses 6 to 13 Amos continues to pronounce God's judgment upon the nation and he gives two further reasons why they've been brought uh, they've been brought judgment upon themselves firstly they've failed to remember and secondly they've failed to engage with God so in verses 6 to 11 we see their failure to remember uh, it's divided into five short sections, each of which closes with the same phrase, Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Amos is using a, a literary style that is sometimes called salvation history, whereby he recites particular historical events in Israel's history, confirming God's covenant dealings with his people as a call to faithfulness on the part of his readers in the present. We see the same sort of technique being used over and over in the Psalms, for example, Psalm 78, Psalm 105 and 106. Now, each of these sections recalls a specific judgment of God in the past history of the nation, uh, and in fact they are covenant curses that God warned he would bring upon them if they failed to keep his covenant, which is the very thing that they have failed to do. Amos's account of God's sovereign intervention is a direct and it is without apology. The curse of famine and drought ought to have reminded the people that they were dependent upon God for the basic necessities of life, like water and crops. The violence of verses 10 to 11 ought to have reminded them that they depended upon God for their safety and security, and that it was not their strongholds, wealth or power that made them safe. And we should note that this whole section is spoken in the first person singular, we're to be left in no doubt this is not chance or fate. This is God speaking. This is God at work. This is what God has done. In three and six, um, chapter 3 and 6, Amos has already pointed out that the evil does not befall a city unless the Lord does it. The great difficulty of this passage, therefore, is not that God is absent from life's troubles, but that rather God, by his own admission, is the cause of these troubles they have experienced. God is the subject of the leading verb in each section, and that subject is reinforced in verses 6 and 7 with an emphatic pronoun, even I myself. However, we must not think that these events are just vengeful or spiteful acts of a God who delights in bringing calamity upon his helpless creation. 
The word yet is very significant in each section because it highlights the fact that each one of these judgments was for a specific purpose. Namely that they would repent from their wrongdoing, from their oppression and greed and idolatry and immorality, uh, and it would return to a genuine relationship with God as per the covenant which they had agreed to. But that word yet also has a, a, a ring of doom-laden finality about it. For in response, the people had rejected every opportunity that God gave them to change their ways. By reminding them of how God judged them in the past for their unfaithfulness of the, to the covenant, God was calling them to repent of the same behaviour in the present. But the yet, I mean, the yet expresses hope that they might do that and then be forgiven and experience blessing again. But it also kind of maybe hints that, well, they might not. And if, they, if the people didn't come back to God after God did all these things, well, would this people? The problem was that Israel had failed to remember its own history. Despite the fact that in some of the events described only a few people survived like brands pulled out of a fire, they still refused to repent and did not return to God. It's been said before that those who forget their history are condemned to repeat it, and that was certainly true in Israel's case. Ultimately, although it was God who did these things, it was God who brought these calamities. In a deeper way, it was the sinful rebellion of God's people and their refusal to repent that was responsible for the troubles they experienced. The repetition of the phrase, yet you did not return to me, highlights the fact that Israel's failure was not a one-off, but was a habitual pattern. It also highlights the fact that God's judgments were not random but were designed to bring them back to covenant faithfulness. The antidote to the failure of Israel is of course to be aware of and to remember the past. The difficulty of course is that we have is that we tend to be selective about what we remember about the past. We look at the past through rose-coloured spectacles, we remember the good times, we imagine that everything including the church was better then than it is now. Not only is that vision of the past never true, as an untrue vision it's also unhelpful because it creates resistance to the future. We need to remember, what we need to remember is, is not simply God's past acts or blessing, what we might call the good times, but also God's presence in the hard times and God's acts of judgement and discipline in our lives. Not only will those memories serve as a reminder of the kind of lifestyle and behaviour that God requires, but they will also, I think, provide a source of comfort and strength in times of trial and temptation now. It can be very helpful to keep a spiritual journal where you can record God's blessings and judgments on your life. However, simply remembering God's past actions by itself is not enough. And that's their second failure, that people fail to engage with God. It's not, not just that they simply fail to remember the past, but rather they also fail to act upon that remembrance. In other words, they fail to engage with God, or rather to re-engage with him. Anyone in Israel could have read the law or the stories of the Exodus. They had plenty of opportunities to recall the past, both the times of blessing and the times of judgment. But they didn't. And so God brought calamity after calamity upon them in order that they would return to him. But they didn't. Even if they had remembered, they'd not learned the lessons of the past. And it's particularly this mistake that we must avoid at all costs. By all means, 
We ought to have a daily time of prayer and reading scripture and it's a lot of value in keeping a spiritual uh, journal. That's something that I, I do myself daily. But we need to take action on what we learn in those activities. If we feel that God has spoken to us in our in our time of prayer and reflection or reading the scriptures or perhaps being in a church service and uh, and listening to the liturgy uh, or um, or listening to the sermon, if we feel that God has spoken to us about an issue in our lives, we need to do something about that. Listening in itself. And even remember, oh yeah, I remember the time I did that, was at that service and God really spoke to us. That in itself doesn't help if we don't respond, if we don't act upon what God says to us. I mean, how often have we attended a church service and we feel that God is speaking to us through a sermon or the liturgy? We might be quite moved by that experience, but we don't actually respond to it. And then by the time that we've gone home and got on with our day, the feeling that we had in the service has passed. But when God speaks, we are meant to respond. And because God is good, all he does is for our good, and so it's to our benefit to respond to what God has to say. I've said many times over many years, and I will continue to say that the Christian life is not simply a matter of believing the right things. No one knows scripture better than the devil. The devil was able to, to quote scripture uh, to Jesus. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, um, only the believers obey and only the obedient believe. See, it's not a matter of believing the right things. It's a matter of how you live in response to those beliefs. And the most astonishing thing about this passage of Amos is not so much that God reveals himself as the cause of all their troubles, or that rather as the one who's brought judgment on them, uh, though we might find that hard to process. What is even more astonishing is the fact that even in the midst of such outright refusal to engage with God, God still offers his people the grace and mercy that they need and the opportunity once more to return to him, even though they have consistently failed to return to him in the past. All of which is encapsulated in that very famous statement in verse 12, prepare to meet your God. <coughs> Excuse me. I remember the very first time that I went to Northern Ireland. It's quite a common thing over there to have uh, scripture texts painted on the roofs of, and, and walls of farm buildings, sometimes even houses. Uh, in those days you had to get the ferry uh, to Larne and as we drove from Larne towards Newtonards, the first text we came across painted on the roof of a barn was prepare to meet thy God. Now I have to admit, especially since the violence of the troubles was still very common in those days, this was not a very encouraging message for any tourists visiting the province for the first time. <clears throat> it's likely that the owner of the barn had understood the text as it is all too often understood. Which is to say, you know, get your life sorted out because you could die any minute and then you'll find yourself before the judgment seat of God. I'm sure this kind of use of the text is very well intentioned, but it's actually a misunderstanding of the text because the text isn't about judgment. It's about grace and mercy. <coughs> Excuse me. As First Testament scholar Alec Moitier points out, Whenever the idea of meeting God is found in the Bible, it has a connotation of grace. 
The nearest parallel to this verse in Amos is Exodus 19 and verse 17, where Moses leads the people from the camp to meet God. The situation was one of immense condescending grace. God descending, clothed in the majesty of his holy law, yet purposing to speak to the people on the ground uh, that he is their saviour and redeemer. In other words, Amos is not speaking here about wrath, but about grace. Even though the people have consistently failed to engage with God, they have consistently failed to return to God, no matter how many calamities God has brought upon them to bring them to their senses, they have failed to return to him. Despite all of that, God is still seeking opportunities to engage with them in order that they would turn away from their wickedness and be spared the inevitable consequence of judgment. It's quite astonishing. Who can fathom the depth of God's love for us? Yet as the following chapters of Amos will show, if God's people continue to refuse to remember his blessings and judgments, if they refuse to uh, engage with him through grace, then the only thing that is left is judgment and destruction. Now, the antidote to this failure is, of course, to be in holy awe of God and to recognise that if he chastens us, if he disciplines us, it is with the purpose of restoring us to faithful living. If we consistently refuse his offer of grace, then all that's left is the certainty of judgment. But as Jesus will say later in the Gospel of John, by our refusal to repent, we condemn ourselves. It's also a powerful reminder, and in our culture such a reminder is urgently needed, that simply going through the motions will not do. Every action and reaction of our lives ought to demonstrate our loving commitment to Jesus as our saving King. The truth of what we actually believe is always demonstrated in our deeds and not in our words. Hence Bonhoeffer's statement to that effect. So this ancient book has much to say to us today. For God has not changed and he makes the same offer of grace and mercy to us that he made to the people in Amos' time. The message is unchanged. God's grace offers salvation in Jesus Christ. And our refusal of it leads only to judgment. But in that, we condemn ourselves. Thanks for listening.